Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. It's Friday, July 12th, and we're going to the mailbag. I'm your host, Dylan Lewis, and I've got Fool.com's Evan New on Skype. Evan, what's going on? Gotta say, I'm excited to see this Lion King movie remake that's coming out this month. I think it looks pretty good. Are you a fan of the live-action remakes that they've been making? Some of them. I mean, I didn't watch. We didn't take the kids to see like Dumbo or Aladdin, but I think we took them to see Beauty and the Beast, which was like a year or two ago. Because my wife, just one of my wife's favorite Disney movies. But I think some of them turn out really good. Some of them look kind of silly. <laughs> I saw the Jungle Book. Uh, I'm not a big, you know, like blockbuster movie person, but I saw the Jungle Book, and it was a little jarring. I think to see a quasi live action type thing done with uh, something that I'd always pictured as animated, you know, from my childhood. Uh, it's kind of like seeing someone that you only ever see in a suit wearing like gym clothes or something like that. Right. I didn't see that one, but I think the technology has come a long way since that one. So hopefully this one, I mean, all the trailers they put out, they look pretty good, I think, in my opinion, for like a live action cartoonish talking animals. <laughs> <laughs> I think, like it or not, we're going to be getting more of them, because the studios know that that's where some serious money can be made. We'll maybe do a little follow-up and see what you think after you've seen it, Evan. Yeah, I think this one's going to make a ton of money. <laughs> um, so, we have a fun mailbag episode. We have a couple of really awesome questions from listeners on today's show. And uh, just a quick note before we dive into the discussion, we are pre-taping this episode. I am on vacation in early July, and so we're just knocking this out. So, if there are any changes to some of these stories, we're going to apologize in advance, but things can change a bit, and we just want to make that note. But, um, Evan, we love getting listener questions. It shows that listeners are curious, that they're interested, and in my opinion, most importantly, it proves that we actually have listeners. Yeah, all dozens of them, right? <laughs> dozens of them. So, so the first one that we're going to hit comes from Tim, and Tim writes in, Hi, IF team. I love your show, and especially love it when you dedicate airtime to sharing research or insight on specific companies and IPOs. Evan, you're always in the mix for those. Your breakdown of a company's fundamentals, SEC filings, business model, and potential red flags are invaluable to part-time investors like me. What a sweet note, Tim. And he asks, any chance you can take a look into Nasper's spinning off their technology slash internet investments into a separate company? This new company is supposed to unlock hidden market value for its 30% stake in Tencent, which is believed to be trading at a huge discount as compared to how Tencent ADRs trade on their own. Thought you may want to look into some of the other startups that are included in this spinoff company. It might be a better way to get exposure to Tencent as well as some other foreign tech companies. So, I think before we answer the question, we need to give a lot of background here, Evan, because this is a complicated story and admittedly one that we weren't super familiar with before we started doing research for today's show. I have to admit, I was not familiar with this at all, and I probably should be since I own Tencent directly, at least the ADRs. <laughs> uh, and I, you know, have not hadn't heard the story, and it is it's a pretty wild one. So, so the background here: Naspers is a hybrid media group and investment firm, and they are based in South Africa. And you go back to 2001, they paid $32 million for a large stake in a Chinese tech startup, and you may have heard of it. Tencent, you know, you're a shareholder. I'm a shareholder. It is surprising that we didn't have this awareness. Uh, probably a little omission on our part. But as Tencent has grown, that 32 million dollar stake has grown to be something north of about 150 billion. I think at one point it was 175 billion dollars. And so this investment is kind of widely looked at as one of the most successful VC bets of all time. But with this kind of growth, it has created some pretty serious problems for Naspers and South African investors. Evan. 
Right, because Nasbros is a pretty small company, like as far as their actual operations go. It's a small little media operation in South Africa, uh, and the vast majority of their value is now because of this, um, the stake in Tencent. And it's, it's almost kind of like um, you know Yahoo and Alibaba back when that was a whole thing and very complicated and kind of a tangled mess, just like this. Yeah, I think I saw a number. Nasbros alone is about a quarter of the Johannesburg stock index. It is the largest company or most valuable company in Africa. Um, so, so it has bloomed into this massive company, pretty much on the back of this individual stake, not anything to do with the operational success of Nasper's the underlying business. Um, one of the big problems with that kind of size, it, it creates problems for people that are fund managers. Um, and because of some of the tangled nature of this ownership and, and whatnot, the company trades at a pretty sizable discount to their actual Tencent ownership stake. Just because of all of the difficulties that come with being so large, uh, and also I think there are some issues with people only being able to own so much of a company or have so much exposure to a company on the fund management side. So people are a little timid to buy shares of Naspers. Right. I think that the current Naspers total market cap is less is currently worth less than its stake alone. So like that in itself is obviously a pretty clear sign. Of a mispricing or a market inefficiency, and I think a lot of these reasons are, you know, really just kind of relate to these market mechanics because it's a small stock index, it's a relatively small exchange, and then you have this one position that is worth just, you know, 120, 140, 150 billion dollars. It's just, it's just really hard to <laughs> to kind of get, you know, have proper, have the market really operating in a smooth and efficient manner when you have this elephant right there. So to remedy all of this, Naspers wants to list some of the ten cent stake as well as some of their international properties in a business called Process, uh, and it will be listed on one of the European exchanges, I believe, in the Netherlands. And Naspers will retain seventy five percent of this holding company that they are creating. Uh, Evan, what what do you make of all of this? It just sounds like it's going to get even more complicated, even messier. I mean, it's just. I mean, if you're an individual investor, what's the point of Buying into these shares once they start trading publicly, when it's still basically just dominated by Tencent. I mean, yeah, you get a little bit of exposure to some of these other investments they have that are going to be held in this holding company. But unless those investments interest you, why not just go buy Tencent shares? I think one of the concerns that I have when I look at a somewhat tangled holding company structure is. It's tantalizing to get that discount. I totally understand that, you know, especially if it's like twenty or thirty percent on the underlying asset. But for that, uh, you're giving up some control. You know, you don't own the shares in the way that you would if they were sitting in your brokerage. You are beholden to whatever the management team of the holding company decides to do. Um, and very often, they're thinking about tax efficiency, which can be good for those people. But it, it's kind of on a case by case basis. You don't you don't have the autonomy that you would if you were just owning the stock. Right. So I guess it also kind of ties into: Are you the kind of investor that really wants to be proactive and you know making these votes and exercising your voting power, uh, whereas a lot of people really just don't? Uh, so yeah, another aspect to it. I think also when when you see something trading at a significant discount, in this case, it's very obvious because you you have the market value of the holdings and you have the market value or the market cap of Naspers. Um, but if you're a value investor, you know you're always looking at what you value something at and then what the market values it at, and that can be a very lucrative way to invest. The problem is that at some point the market needs to realize that they have been undervaluing something, and that doesn't always happen when we have these tangled holding company structures. 
Right. I mean, there's a lot that can can continue to hold the valuation back. Uh, and again, tying back to these kind of you know, market mechanic issues, not anything with Tencent's actual fundamentals. Yeah, I mean, I am reminded quite a bit of uh, Altaba and Alibaba. Uh, Altaba being the spinoff that was used to house all of Yahoo's stake in Alibaba after they were purchased. Um, and this is something that has traded at a massive discount pretty much the entire time uh, that it has existed as a publicly traded uh, option for people. And that's because they've had this huge anticipated tax liability that sharing uh, that selling the shares would create. Um, now we're at a point where the holding company uh, Altaba is expected to sell at least some of their shares. Again, that, that's where you run into an issue where um, you're not in control of the shares the way you would be if you just owned Alibaba outright. And yeah, we'll have to. Get to know all this tax liability stuff, which may not be the most interesting thing to investors compared to like you know studying the fundamentals, which to me is more interesting than like tax liability. <laughs> I am with you there, Evan. I think for me, it's a matter of keep it simple. Don't don't wind up in something that is uh, a little too uh, complicated, you know, uh, or more complicated than it needs to be. I can see how that discount might be interesting to people, and depending on the international properties that are in there, you know, there there might be a way to access stuff that would otherwise be a little bit tougher uh, to get into, but for my money, if you're interested in Tencent, I would rather just own the Tencent ADRs uh, than own some stake in uh, this Nasper spinoff. Yeah, that's the same boat I'm in. I've never touched Altaba either, but I do own Tencent, so yeah. there you go. You and me both. Good company to be in there, Evan. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we have a question from Stoyan. I hope I'm saying that name right. So Stoyan wrote in, my question is in the context of trade tariffs. I own several Chinese companies for the long-term growth potential in the region. Among my holdings are Alibaba, Auto Home, Momo, JD.com, IQ, and Sina. Most of these companies deal either exclusively in China or more broadly the Asia-Pacific market. So why are these companies and others like them subject to so much market volatility as a result of the trade deal with the US despite not having any business relationship with the US market? This is a great question, Evan, and I think it's one that a lot of people have. You know, you think of these primarily as pure plays on the emerging middle class in China and and the general growth story there. How come they're getting caught up in all this macro stuff? Right, so it is a pretty far-reaching uh, question because the the impacts of these things are really uh, kind of you know it's hard to appreciate them. So even though these tariffs apply to specific goods uh, moving between the U.S. and Canada, or excuse me, U.S. and China, uh, there is a ripple effect that reverberates throughout each economy. Uh, so for example, you know the Chinese government has been very surgical with the tariffs that it's been putting in in response to Trump's tariffs, specifically targeting regions that are. Uh, really politically important to him, you know, such as agricultural products hitting rural economies, which is where his base are, uh, bases concentrated. And the same thing is happening in China. So the UF tariffs are impacting a large, you know, broad swaths of their economy. And basically, what it does, it hurts everything in, from consumer confidence to demand for discretionary goods to large ticket purchases like cars. Uh, you know, for example, China is the world's largest car market. Sales in May were down something like 16%, which was the worst ever decline in like the 11th consecutive month of declines. But other sectors, you know, real estate, e-commerce, consumer electronics, they're all getting hit really hard. So they have really broad macro effects uh, that affect you know, pretty much everything in the economy. 
Right. I mean, markets hate uncertainty. I think that is one of the truisms of investing and something that, as you spend more time looking at businesses and just looking at big picture economic issues, the market's never going to respond favorably to uncertainty. We want predictability. And that's true also for people that are operating businesses. You know, if you are trying to make purchase order decisions based on what you think, uh, you know, the next six or 12 months might look like, and that's a very cloudy picture, it's going to be a lot harder to do it with a lot of confidence. Right. So, like, imagine if you're a company that's impacted by these, and all of a sudden you have this huge new cost that's introduced into your operations. You don't know how long the tariffs are going to be in place because these negotiations are ongoing and things are just going back and forth, really. And, you know, it's very volatile, the talks are. And so, it's like, do you absorb the costs or do you pass along to consumers in the form of higher prices? If you eat the costs, you're hurting your bottom line, might even put you in the red. Raising prices hurts demand. Maybe you set aside some money to pay for them, but that's money that you might otherwise be using to reinvest in the business or hire more workers. I mean, there's just yeah. If you you know kind of drill that into it, 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 it imagine what you know these companies are faced with. It kind of you know really adds to this idea of like how much uncertainty is being you know, thrown into the mix, which you know as you mentioned, you know, no one likes. And you take the next step there, and you start thinking about okay, well, higher prices mean that consumers are paying more for things. That's why we see demand for some of those discretionary items come down. You know, if you have only so much money to work with, and the things that you need to be buying wind up going up a little bit in price, you may not be as willing to shell out some money for entertainment or luxury goods or something like that. So even though they may not be directly tied to what's going on in terms of tariffs, um, it winds up having kind of this trickle down effect. Right, and then another angle is that you know, imagine you're a company that's already getting caught in all this stuff, the trade war, but you have the ability to maybe shift some of your operations to other countries that aren't affected. So that's what a lot of these companies are going to want to do, and you start to invest in other countries to diversify your supply chain and reduce this geopolitical risk that you're facing. So foreign investment in the U.S. and China, you know, both get hurt too. You know, as an example, uh, there have been recent reports that Apple's even looking to move some of its production out of China, which is, you know, Apple's always had huge production footprint in China, and they're now looking at moving to other countries in Southeast Asia. Those jobs are not coming back to the U.S., but you know, they're moving stuff around, and you know, that's money that they otherwise would have been investing in China, but now they need to spread out their, their infrastructure. So yeah, that's just another piece of it. I mean, there's a lot of ways that this all gets tied together. Yeah, I think we can wrap up the answer to this one by saying uh, the, the economy is kind of complicated, but tariffs wind up throwing a fairly large wrench into this machine. And even if you are just a small gear in the upper right corner of the machine, if you know one of the large gears down in the bottom left isn't spinning, it's probably going to impact you in some way. Right. I mean, these are the world's two largest economies. So I, I do think that this trade war is very much threatening to put the global economy into recession. And I mean, we're already seeing signs of you know GDP growth is slowing. Uh, and you know, it's worth noting that that's part of how Trump says he thinks that China pays the tariffs, which they do not by definition. Uh, but he thinks that you know they're going to pay for it in terms of you know the economic slowdown. Uh, and some of the numbers are starting to play that out with play out like well, in terms of GDP growth that China's putting up that's you know, really decelerating. And any deceleration there will just generally hurt Chinese companies. Period. And then us too. I mean, the the you know Tim Cook put it like U.S. and China are just tied together with their economy. So. I mean, we're we're hurting, but you know, we're hurting ourselves too. <laughs> <laughs> All right, our last question takes us from a super big picture issue to something very specific to one industry. Uh, one of our listeners, Paul, asks: There seem to be a lot of lofty valuations for SaaS companies right now. Does that seem sustainable, or more like the beginnings of a bubble that might pop? 
Also, any specific companies that seem more or less vulnerable. And I think over the past year and a half, I have done more episodes on SaaS companies than I had in probably the previous three years, Evan. I think that this has become such a large part of the investing consciousness, especially in the tech space, because the returns have been so good for so many of these companies. But I think there are a lot of people starting to wonder with these valuations, is it getting out of hand? Yeah, I mean, this software as a service is one of these sectors that has always really fetched these high multiples and lofty valuations because, you know, quite simply, a lot of them are just really fantastic businesses. I mean, they have you know really great visibility into you know because a lot of this revenue is coming from long-term subscriptions that are built up front and and then recognized over time. They have great margins and operating leverage because you know software as a service can scale extremely well, so the profits are really good. And then on top of that, a lot of them have made their platforms and services really indispensable to large enterprise customers. So, I mean, that's like a really powerful trifecta of like really strong business. It is. Yeah. I mean, you have recurring revenue, which we love. It's high margin, which we also love. But the valuations can get a little out of hand. Um, When you look out at the SaaS space, is there anything in particular where you say, this is kind of the hallmark of a bad business? I mean, we had done some shows on Domo before, and they had a bunch of red flags. That, you know, we don't want to get too you know deep into it again, but yeah, you know, I didn't think that they looked like a very promising one, uh, and you know they also had a pretty long, you know lofty valuation, but they just didn't seem to really fit some of these other criteria when you actually drill down into it. I mean, that's just one that came to mind for me. Something I think people should probably have on their radar is, you know, this question's about SaaS, but what we have seen over the last two years as SaaS has become way more popular um, and the valuations have been pretty incredible, is that you have a lot of other industries that are not really SaaS that are trying to brand themselves as a service. And I remember looking at the prospectuses for Lyft and for Uber and basically saying, these are billing themselves as task companies, you know, transportation as a service. The, the fundamental issue there, though, is these businesses look very different than a company like Salesforce does. Right. And I think it's this whole, like, as a blank is really contrived to me because, for example, Fiverr just went public and they built themselves as a, quote, service as a product platform, which is like, what, what does that even mean? Like, yeah, a service, <laughs> yes, you pay for a service. Uh, I'm mean, like, you know, just really gratuitously trying to turn it into an as a acronym. <laughs> so, it's just, you know, it's just another example of what you're talking about, this trend of, you know, these companies trying to you know, piggyback on this as a something, and then as a result, hoping to get a really good valuation. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that it is the buzzword of the time, particularly in tech. And if you are looking to identify best in breed SaaS companies, you know, for me, it's always a matter of, what does net revenue retention rate look like? You know, that is looking at the existing customer base a year ago and that customer cohort now. Are we collecting more money? You know, I'd like to see that number somewhere north of 110% for a lot of these companies. You see some really stellar businesses that'll be 120, 130%, and you'll have to pay a higher premium for that. But it means that, you know, with every customer they're bringing in, they're not only getting growth from adding that customer, but they're rolling in all these extra products, services, functionality that gets them to pay more down the road. That's a sign that they have a pretty compelling offering. Right. And, you know, just to kind of add on top of that, like some of the things that I look at, 
uh, when look at these types of companies that, you know, a lot of them report how many prominent customers they have, which is usually defined by they spent X amount per year. And, you know, they'll report that number. And so it's good to see how many big customers they have. Uh, billings is also an important, met- important metric because it usually represents uh, revenue with some adjustments related to the change in deferred revenue. It just shows how much they're, uh, you know, they're billing to their customers. And, and another thing to kind of keep in mind with these companies is that a lot of them target enterprise customers, which means, you know, to your point about increasing this net revenue retention rate, you know, the way they do that is they have these, you know, human sales force people with, you know, really long sales cycles that tend to be longer, more complex uh, because, you know, you're, you're really engaging with these IT managers or leadership in the IT organizations. But that also means that your sales and marketing expense is really high. Some of these deals take a really long time to close. So you have to be kind of patient there versus like in the consumer space, you know, a lot of the times you'll see more or sales are more self-serve or automated. So it's just another thing to kind of really be aware of that one key difference in how a lot of these companies operate. Yeah. And I think if you're trying to figure out, okay, where do, or where does a company fall? You know, is it that they are really bid up because of expectations or is this a company that may take a hit as the market takes a downturn but will generally weather it okay i think it's important to look at what the valuation for the business is built on you know is it a story of total addressable market that they haven't yet realized or is it something where they have a huge customer base and there is the promise that for the next you know foreseeable future they're going to be enjoying all this high margin recurring revenue if it's the latter, I think that those are the types of businesses that can weather economic downturns and you know the the looming recession a lot better um, because they have an indispensable product. And, and I'm thinking specifically about the Adobe's and the Salesforce's of the world. Um, they will fare far better than some of the high flying growth stories that we're seeing come public now. Right. I mean, Salesforce is really kind of the poster child. And pioneer of a lot of this, the current modern breed of you know SaaS companies, and it's interesting because my, my wife actually <clears throat> is a Salesforce admin, so she works you know very hip, deeply in this platform, and just you know really get it gives me some exposure to understand like how these companies rely so heavily on Salesforce, like they can't switch away from it because. The, you know they're so invested in the platform. The switching costs are enormous. You have to retrain so many people, and it just works so well. And it's just an interesting. You know, now that we're talking about it, <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know that, Evan. Yeah, she's been in it for a couple of years now. So you know, maybe over the past two to four years, she's been kind of uh, getting into that world and getting the certifications and you know finding better jobs and job. And there's, and there's a lot of demand for those types of jobs too. So it's also a nice thing. Yeah, I guess um, the the reason that these companies are so powerful is that they are sticky, as you mentioned. You know, once you're in uh, as an enterprise client and people start using you. Um, the utility is there, and as long as you serve those customers well, you should do pretty fine because the switching costs are so high. But you know, if the story is we are going to dramatically be increasing our customer base over time, and we run into a period where, okay, uh, we hit that economic downturn, um, and businesses are starting to be a little stricter in what they're spending on, they may not go after those new tools. And so, one business I think that is probably worth putting into the Valuation built on TAM type bucket here is Slack because so much of the story with this company is it's early days. They are a killer enterprise product, and they're going to be the must-have corporate communication tool. Right, but they're also valuation is insane. Like they're trading at over forty times sales, which is you know, for a sector that notoriously has really high, you know, multiples. There's is 
even on the high end of that. And yeah, I agree. Like I, I love Slack as a user, and I think some of their fundamental metrics that they're putting up are great. Uh, but I have a couple of concerns, which is why I'm not you know investing at this point. You know because a the valuation, but also b you know a lot of a key part of how these companies expand is by you know really offering a range of stuff to keep them. You, know, you keep these customers really uh, immersed in the platform. And Slack hasn't really expanded beyond core messaging. Uh, I mean, the messaging is great, but, you know, customers could potentially switch to something like Microsoft Teams, which Microsoft bundles with, like, a million other core productivity stuff. Uh, so that's one thing that I would like to see Slack do is, you know, can they expand into other areas uh, in a way that's compelling? Like, for example, Dropbox is another one of these SaaS companies. They've historically always been on cloud storage, but now they're really trying to push other types of just team collaboration tools uh, as, you know, in, in an effort to try to you know really make themselves indispensable. Yeah, and that's how you juice that net revenue retention rate number two. Yeah, that's that's the key. <laughs> so, folks, I hope that answers some of the questions that you have. We love doing these mailbag episodes, so please write in with more ideas for shows. Um, Evan, anything else before I let you go? Happy 4th of July. Happy 4th of July. Yes, we're taping on the 2nd. We are about to enjoy a nice little break. Are you doing anything fun? Uh, no, I don't think we're going to do anything too big. We'll just take the day off, probably. Nice. Uh, I will be grilling uh, and hanging out on my deck and just kind of enjoying a nice DC summer day. Producer, Austin Morgan, what's the July 4th plan? So, uh, well, I have to do physical therapy every day this week, so except for the 4th. So, I think I'm going to drive up to my parents' house in... Solomon's Island in Maryland, and then drive back on Friday morning. <laughs> oh, I bet that that's going to be a rough drive home in the morning. Yeah, so I'm going to drive home, go to physical therapy, and then probably drive back up there for the weekend. So it'll be lots of road time and yeah. lots of shoulder pain. So It's hard to frown when you're out on a body of water. Can't beat it. Can't beat it. It's probably, probably going to be a lot of traffic then. <laughs> <laughs> it is easy to frown in traffic. It's very easy to frown <laughs> All right, listeners, that does it for this episode of Industry Focus. Hope that you guys have a great July 4th. If you guys have any questions or you want to reach out and say, hey, shoot us an email at industryfocus@fool.com, or you can tweet us at MFIndustryFocus. If you want more of our stuff, subscribe on iTunes or check out videos from the podcast on YouTube. As always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against stocks mentioned, so don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Thanks to Austin Morgan for all his work behind the glass. For Evan New, I'm Dylan Lewis. Thanks for listening, and Fool on! <laughs>